Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. And while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 20. Well, with 20 minutes on the clock, we return to the story of David, who is living in uncertainty. And there's few things that are worse than uncertainty. Like, if you know something is coming, or if something comes and it happens, the tragedy strikes, uh, the unexpected thing happens, but now you know about it, and you can deal with it. You, You might have experienced this in 2020. I certainly did. But it felt like for a while in the spring of 2020, every morning you woke up and you reached for your phone and you checked the news to see what new thing was befalling our world today. And and to a far lesser extent uh, in my life, although far more in the lives of those in the Ukraine, uh, that was like that, especially in the early days of, of Russia's invasion, where, where every morning you got up and say, hey, is, is Zelensky still alive? Is, you know, have they taken Kiev yet? You know, the whole thing. And so there are these times of uncertainty, and those weigh on the human soul. And David has been living in uncertainty. Yes, he is married to the king's daughter, and yes, he is successful in his new career as a military leader and national hero. But his father-in-law, the king, keeps trying to kill him. And then things get patched over, and he tries to kill him again. And things get patched over, and he tries to kill him again. That kind of trauma leaves scars. One of the things I'm finding is both, uh, you know, this last year as I, as I substitute taught uh, in the schools and then also pastoring was that there is sort of this idea that uh, adults will look at children and say, oh, they're just a bad kid without ever processing what's going on at home. What kind of scars are being left? What kind of trauma is happening? And we certainly won't do that for kids, and how much more so for adults, too, that will look around and say, oh, they're just, you know, this or that, without pausing to say, like, what hurt is, is playing on this situation? Chapter 20, verse 1 says, Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? So this is the hurts that's weighing on David. He hasn't done anything wrong. He is on the run. He is under threat of his life. He's been separated from his family. He, he's, he's gone from national hero to, you know, uh, most wanted. And, and he's, what have I done? Verse 2, never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. You know, the, um, the reality of traumatic situations and, and traumas is that it is almost always happening with enablers. Um, you know, something that struck me so, uh, I don't know, it, it, it was just something that stood out to me, uh, especially as the Me Too thing was, was at the forefront and powerful men across 
uh, our country were being exposed, one of the things that stuck out to me was there was almost always an enabler, and they were almost always a woman. And it was surprising to me that, that Ghislaine Maxwell is not an isolated case. That, you know, when you think about Harvey Weinstein or Charlie Rose or any of these powerful media figures, powerful uh, business figures, elites who, who carried on abuse of women for years and sometimes decades, they almost always had a powerful assistant who was there enabling their crimes. And this isn't just in the Me Too cases. We find this across the board. Somebody didn't do the crime. Somebody didn't do the wrong thing. Somebody didn't perpetrate the evil, but they are there enabling in some way. You know, everybody, you know, maybe you go, how did you not know? How, how did you not know that uh, this was happening? And then you find out that there was somebody who had to have known, but they were covering it up. And maybe they themselves are in denial. How many times has that happened? Where a, a, a parent is abusing someone and the spouse, you would think they have to know. And, and in deep down they do, but they're in such denial. And that's what Jonathan's doing here. He loves his father and he can't admit that his father is trying to kill David. Verse 3, David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, it is only a step between me and death. So what he's saying to Jonathan, his best friend, is, Look, I get it. You love your father. And, and generally speaking, yes, your father doesn't do anything without telling you. But right now, he is trying to kill me. Right now, this is happening. Jonathan says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until evening of the day after tomorrow. And if your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission uh, to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because of an annual sacrifice being made there for his home, whole clan. And if he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. For as you know, showing kindness to your servant, uh, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. And if I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? So what, what David is saying is, here, here's a test. There's this feast I'm supposed to be at with your dad. But you tell him, I wanted to be there, but I needed to go because there was a family thing. And any reasonable, per, any reasonable person would have just said, oh, that makes sense, you know, sure. You know, this is, a, this is a holiday, go be with your family. But if he boils over with rage, if he just flies off the handle, you can tell that he wanted me there because he was planning to kill me. But David also is not totally sure where Jonathan is, and that's understandable because Jonathan's trying to cover up for his dad. And he says, look, if your dad wants to kill me, then why don't you just do it? Why, why bother? Why waste the time handing me over to your dad? And David's not dumb. Saul wants to kill David because he views David as a threat to his power and his throne. And who is in line to inherit that power and that throne? It's Jonathan. But what does Jonathan say? He says, never. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. And so they went together. 
And then Jonathan said, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. And if he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If you do not if I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness in the Lord's kind, like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan is recognizing the reality of what God is doing. Jonathan knows that his father has had the kingdom taken away from him. The prophet Samuel speaking for God made that clear. Jonathan knows that. They may not know about Samuel anointing David as king. That's never made clear from the scripture. Uh, is it possible that they would have heard a rumor? Yeah, it's possible. Is it possible and maybe just more likely that they knew that since God had taken the kingdom away from them, that there would likely rise up a replacement or a threat. And David seems the obvious guy. Also very possible. Sometimes you don't need to know just to see with your own eyes what's happening. And I appreciate the humility of Jonathan. He knows what God is doing. And he swears by the Lord because he is still faithful to God, even though his father has not been. And he says, look, all I'm asking is that you don't kill me or my family. Because in ancient times, you killed the threats to your power. The king died. A prince took the throne. It was not uncommon in ancient times for that prince to kill his brothers so that there would be no one else who could claim the throne. You have a king who's from outside of the dynasty coming in. Who's the king going to kill? Because if you know British history, you know that like, you know, Henry VIII had a bunch of kids. And then when he dies, there's different kids who are saying, no, I'm the rightful heir to the throne. No, I'm the rightful heir. And then there's like some two-year-old that gets whisked away to France. And then in 10 years, you know, he's like 12, but he's old enough to ride a horse. So they say he's the king and the French march an army in so they can put up their puppet king. But the people will go, well, he was the son of Henry. So what what Jonathan's saying is, look, David, I get that God's made you the king, but when you become the king, don't act like the rest of the world. The rest of the world would say it's totally natural to kill all threats to your throne. David, don't act like them. David, you're a man of God. Don't act like the others. Let Israel be different. Is there self-interest there? Am I saying that he's saying that all for altruistic reasons? He just wants Israel to be a holy place. I'm, I'm sure it's not all there is, but I think it's part of it. And even if it's not all there is, even if he's just saying this out of self-interest, it's the truth. Israel would be a better place if it acted and lived differently than the rest of the world, and especially and including renouncing this sort of violence and retribution that was so common in their day and is still so common in so many parts of the world. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had reaffirmed his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed, because your seat will be empty. And the day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began, and wait by the stone of Azel. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. 
And then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. And if I say to him, look, the arrows are on the side of you. Bring them here. And then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe and there's no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about that matter you and I discussed, remember that the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. And he sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. You might remember when we did the book of Exodus in the 20-minute Bible study, and there were all these laws and rules and regulations about being clean ceremonially or unclean ceremonially. And so what could have caused this? And there's a number of things that could have caused this. There's things that were just, they're good things, you know, or they're not necessarily bad things, you know. Um, You know, there were certain things maybe um, if, you know, David's a warrior. So let's say that David had been somewhere and there had been a, a border skirmish and something had happened or there'd been an accident and one of his men had, um, had died. And if David had helped carry the body to where it was to be buried, he would be ceremonially unclean and would not be able to attend the feast. And the reason was that touching a dead body did that. You could not touch a dead body and then attend the feast. And so there's things that would be in the course of his duties where you go, oh, okay, maybe, yeah, that makes sense. I actually think it's not a good reason that Saul thinks David ceremonially unclean because most of the things that would have made him such were sinful. And my suspicion is that Saul is so given over to sin. I mean, we know that there is idolatry rampant in his family and it's not too far to think that there's other sins happening that, that are being expressed in the way he has acted in the last several chapters. And so Saul just assumes, oh yeah, he's just sinning like everybody else. Cynicism is the, one of the biggest threats right now. I, I really believe that. Cynicism is one of the biggest threats right now to our faith. Because we get inundated with YouTube, Twitter, whatever it is. And we see these things as normatives, even if they are not necessarily normative. And then there are things that we may not see publicly, but we think, oh, that's not happening anywhere. That there aren't women and men who are living as best they can in the ways of God. We, we, we just get this cynical idea that, you know, oh, everybody's, just, everybody's just out doing whatever. And I think that's where Saul's at because he is so entrenched in sin that he can't see. He's no longer has eyes for the holiness of God. And so he's just making this assumption, oh, David's ceremonially unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. And then Saul said to Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. And he said, let me go because my family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. See, David was the youngest in his family. And so in in their uh, patriarchal clan kind of culture, uh, they would have had to listen to the, uh, you know, hey, what, what is the older brothers telling me to do? Uh, there is an indication by that that perhaps his father has passed away and now his oldest brother is in charge of the family. And uh, eventually David, of course, would outrank him as king and that would change the whole dynamic. But in this case, uh, you know, 
it, it should have been culturally understandable. It should have been culturally understandable that during a, a high holiday that somebody's family had a thing happening and you would have said, oh yeah, go, be with your family. Even more so if the head of the clan or, or the tribe said, you need to be here. Nobody would question that. But what does he say? He says, uh, you know, my, uh, his brother had ordered him to be there. And if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go to see my brothers. And that is why he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Didn't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? And Saul's not, this is not a good look for Saul here. As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. So what Saul's saying is, you, you idiot. You, you, you're friends with this guy. You think this guy's okay, but you will not be king if he is alive. Now, is that why Saul wants to kill him? Is it to protect his son? No, because Saul's wanted to kill him for a while and had nothing to do with Jonathan. It had to do with himself. It's amazing how many people will use others as a justification for what they themselves want. Oh, here's my reason for doing this thing. Is it really, though? Is it really about Jonathan, or is it about you? Because right now, it seems to all be about you. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Hey, wait, I thought you just said that Jonathan needed his kingdom to be established, but you're so mad at Jonathan for questioning you that you try to kill your own son. Then Jonathan knew that his father had indeed intended to kill David. And Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on the second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field with his meeting with David, and a small boy went with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot the arrows beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrows had fallen, Jonathan called after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? And then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. And the boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. And the boy knew nothing about this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go, carry them back to town. And after the boy had gone, David got out from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times and with his face to the ground. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Now, again, you know, in general, I'm deferring all comments on the relationship between David and Jonathan uh, to a couple episodes ago where I dealt with this whole thing. That being said, I will make a quick comment that the only way that you immediately read this as uh, anything uh, sexual is if you impose modern 2020 American norms to ancient times. And, and I'll just say that. Uh, knowing what I know of ancient culture... Um, this, uh, this would not be read that way at first, at first glance. Jonathan said to David, go in peace for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord Jesus, or sorry, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of the Lord. Uh, I mean, Jesus is there. Oh gosh. Such a theological, weird. Jesus is God. God, the father is God. God, the Holy Spirit is God. All they knew of was Yahweh the Lord. And they knew that God was there. And they also understood that God had a spirit that was working. And then there's what's called a Christophany where, where sometimes God would appear in the form of a man and they didn't really understand what was going on there. I'm going to move on. <laughs> the Lord is my witness between you and me. Believe 
and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left and Jonathan went back to town. So David flees. Spoiler alert, far later in the story, when David is king, he will fulfill his vow to Jonathan. He never went after Jonathan. He, he never went after Saul even. He could have killed Saul. Saul didn't die by the hand of David. Saul died because of his own sin and rebellion. But later on, when David is king, he looked for the descendants of Jonathan not to kill them, but to do right by them. And even though we were Jesus' enemies, he didn't come after us to destroy us. He came after us to save us. And in that way, David is a picture of Jesus. Well, our time is up. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. New episodes are released on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. You just have to search Faith on Hill. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill Church, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.